Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. In Ephesians, we have some of the most exalted language of the New Testament in its description of Christ being all in all. As we talked last week that Christ is recapitulating all things. There's a cosmic recapitulation. And then we have some of the most profound description of evil and of Christ's confrontation and defeat of evil. And I think the two things go together. And that is that I think the failure to capture the integrating cosmic vision of Christ is also a failure to recognize that evil is itself part of a failed vision, a kind of partial understanding. That is that we can participate in the fullness of meaning in Christ. The fullness of the meaning of who we are, the fullness of the meaning of the world, of the universe. Or we can take the part for the whole. You know, we can take the flesh. We can take male or female. We can take circumcised and uncircumcised. We can take that for the reality and miss the reality of Christ. We can miss the reality of who God is, of who we are, and we can create our own understanding. And this is the sin, I believe, that Christ confronts. And so with that in mind, let's read Ephesians 2, 1 to 7. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so Paul opens this passage, he's describing what is sin. Notice that he, first of all, says this is an all-inclusive category. That all of us were walking, and he describes it as according to this world, or according to the course of this world. Sin is such that we are shaped by the limits of the world. It's a kind of incapacity to account for the world, as the world is to be taken complete in itself. You know, this is John actually describes two kinds of cosmos. There's the cosmic order that is created by human beings, and then there's God's good creation. And so Paul connects two things that maybe we don't normally connect. 
taking what is finite for the infinite. That is, we attach a kind of infinite meaning to what doesn't deserve it. We misdirect meaning, and this in fact gives rise to this kind of sinful desire that he equates with the lust of the flesh. We invest ultimate meaning in that which cannot bear this meaning. And he's going to equate being lost in a godless cosmos with the lust of the flesh. Two interesting notions there. The semantic load that can be attached, for example, to the biological body. I think that's partly what he means when he says flesh. It may be an example of the closed order of meaning of being locked in a godless cosmos. And we're living in an age in which there seems to be no end to the arrangement, for example, of gender. LGBTQ is a, re a refrain, though, of the oldest of identities, and that is male, female. And that is that there are a variety of ways that we might write over or assign meaning to the biological body with a meaning that is not inherent to that body. I think we might attempt to find what is infinite in what is finite. We might take the cosmos or something in the cosmos, like our own body, as filled with meaning in and of itself. And I believe you can do this in any number of ways. I think this is the whole issue of white, black. You can assign a kind of intrinsic meaning to those categories. Jew, Gentile, LGBTQ, or maybe simply being part of a particular nationality. Circumcised or uncircumcised is the example that Paul uses. And the idea is that the letter, the semantics, the ideology, the meaning is considered prime reality apart from what is God's good creation. The biological body, for example. And the reality of the world is divided up or separated according to this meaning. So, you know, in the Jewish system, there's two kinds of people. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. There's circumcised, there's uncircumcised. Paul, he elsewhere describes this as, he says, the law dominates the man for whatever time he lives. That is the system of meaning. And Paul will identify this type according to his own experience. He's saying they are ignorant of their own actions and have an incapacity to discern evil. He's not talking just about anybody. He's actually talking about himself when he was a Pharisee. There is a fusion between sin and the law. There is a fusion between the meaning that we would assign and the reality. So that Paul says at the time he was doing it, he could not discern the sort of evil in which he himself was engaged. You know, in Galatians he talks about he had zeal for the law and his advancement in Judaism was marked by his persecution of the church and his desire to destroy it. So that his advancement in Judaism, the better he kept the law, the more evil he became. That's what he's describing. 
For Paul, the law was not a marker of sin and evil, but was fused with sin such that he could not perceive his own evil. And his zeal, his zeal for the law was evil. Being a good Jew was Paul's problem, right? He thought that was enough. Now he's not critiquing Judaism. He's not even really critiquing the law. He's just saying, I thought that was an end in and of itself. And I hope you hear the warning. You know, when Paul is describing this, he's not just describing himself or one particular group of people. He's saying this is the human problem. The temptation for us to create a meaning in that which should not have that sort of fullness. You know, being maybe for us a good American or maybe being a good man or being a good woman. And we imagine that this is enough or that there is a fullness of meaning in that alone. And as Paul advanced in his law keeping and in Judaism, he simultaneously realized when he became a Christian, oh, I was advancing in evil. Thinking that I was doing the good, I was doing evil. It did not occur to Paul, the Pharisee, that there is a reality which exceeded the measure of the law. And of course, that's what we have to say about everything. There is a reality that exceeds, you know, the various measures that we will put upon things. The very symbol systems or meanings, being American or being male or being female. And clearly Paul is not imagining that he's rightly understood the law. It's the opposite. He dubs this having confidence in the flesh. And the problem is the flesh marked by the law has become a principle unto itself. The symbolic order of the law reigns supreme. And for example, the biological body or the created order is written over or made to conform to this kind of semantic load. So the problem is not a problem of any particular group. But in Paul's terms, you know, this is what he's saying, that we all suffered from this problem. This kind of divided body is the way he's going to describe it. And of course, when we talk about divided, it's divided in many ways. In Ephesians 2, 11 to 12, we're going to talk about the division of Jews. But in other places, he talks about the division of gender, male and female. Or he'll talk about the division of Jew and Greek, or slave and free, or social status. In other words, you can take anything and through this kind of divided order, come up with an absolute meaning. In verse 11 of chapter 2, therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. You know, let's not miss what circumcision is. It's a cutting off of the part of a human, human body. It's a mark in the flesh. So the divided body, you know, it might be classed as here as between circumcision or uncircumcision. But of course, it's also talking about a, a, the body itself, the literal physical body. And so he'll talk about male and female. He'll talk about race. But the point is that this division makes of the flesh a sign system 
or a blank slate for inscribing the symbolic order uh, of the law into the flesh, you know, circumcised or uncircumcised. It's clearly the imposition of a sign system, of a mark in the flesh on the biological body. And so we know, you know, male and female can play the same role. When we were in Japan, you know, to be female in Japan, it carried all kinds of weight, maybe a heavier weight than being male. You were kind of the center of the family. There's a kind of passiveness, but at the same time, there's a kind of ultimate nurturing. There's a kind of servitude. And all of this meaning is not there in male or female, it's just imposed by the culture. And of course it's in conjunction with being male, that to be female is over and against male. So too the idea of circumcision and uncircumcision. It's a binary that is not simply a description of the physical marks, but it is religious, it's ethnic, it's inscribed in Jew-Gentile. He refers to it as the desire of the flesh, as the lust of the flesh. He talks about it as having this mind and flesh issue in 2-3. The very orientation gives rise then to the peculiarity of human desire. That is desire gone bad. If we could trace the genealogy of human desire gone bad, I think this is it. And Paul calls this the enmity of the flesh. Paul has no problem with human bodies or biological bodies. That's not what he's talking about. You know, we know that Christ is going to destroy this enmity in his own flesh. So it's not a flesh problem. It's not the flesh per se, but it's the semantic load. It's the meaning that is attached to the flesh, that is invested in the flesh. The flesh can't bear this weight. And so in 2.15, by abolishing in his flesh, that is Christ, the enmity, the hostility, the division, the agonistic struggle, we're pitted against ourselves, we're pitted against one another through the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Paul has no problem with the law inherently. It's what people would do with that system. And Christ abolishes the enmity. He breaks down the wall of hostility, is the illustration Paul uses. The antagonism created in a divided flesh. And so Paul describes this, we might call it the semantics of the flesh, the meaning of the flesh. I think that's what he means when he talks about conforming to the world. A conformity in which death reigns and which is controlled by the prince of the power of the air. We're talking about evil here. And apparently this power, this power of evil, is connected, he says, to the lust of the flesh. And he connects this to the spirit-mind duality. So there's an antagonism, a sacrificial economy, in which we actually sacrifice reality for unreality. And this predominates in human culture and religion up to and including the Jewish religion. Not that it's inherently a problem. I mean, Paul's Jewish. He has no problem with Judaism per se, but it's what Jews would do with Judaism. 
But he would say that about all people. It's what Gentiles would do with their Gentileness. It's what men would do with being a man. It's what women would do with being a woman. And so there is an antagonism, a sacrificial economy that predominates in human culture, in human religion. And I think we can read Christianity as supporting this wrongly. In other words, there is a whole understanding of Christianity that imagines, oh, it's just a support of this kind of sacrificial economy. And we have entire systems of atonement. You know, why did Jesus die? And I think we miss in penal substitution, in divine satisfaction. Or maybe we just miss it in our treatment of other people, the treatment of women, the treatment of other races. What Walter Wink has called the domination system. We read it as though it is not disrupting this economy, but supporting it. But of course, I think that's exactly wrong. Christianity is disrupting the economy and order that we would give to the world in and through the law. And we're all subject to this law. This principle or power, this force that Paul describes it. Maybe what, you know, this, this idea of domination, dominating the other, power, violence. And this redemptive violence, I think, is inscribed deep within the human psyche. Paul will describe a kind of original sacrificial relation that's not good, it's evil. According to him, it's established within his own relationship to himself. He actually uses the word ego in Greek. And the law which establishes a kind of alienated distance from himself. And there's a passage, you know, in which he describes, I do what I don't want to do and what I want to do I don't do. There is a kind of symbolic distance from his own body. And there's the law of the mind and the law of the body. And he says these two things are pitted against one another. Now he's not describing himself as a Christian. He's describing the unchristian Paul. And the body which we might think can be reduced. You know is our problem the, the good body that God created us with? Is it that our biological body in some way is a problem? I don't think so. I think in fact that we turn away from that. We sacrifice that. And Paul will describe it in terms of the flesh acting according to its own principle. And by flesh, of course, he doesn't mean literally the biological body. He means the flesh invested with this meaning that it cannot bear. The body refuses to obey the mind or the soul, and it speaks on its own. I do what I don't want to do. I don't think it's the biological body. And of course, this is important, not just in terms of ourselves, but in terms of the whole cosmos. Is there an inherent problem with the way God created us? Not at all. God has created it good. He's called all things good. And the failure then is not in God's good creation. But it's with what we have overlaid that creation. The meaning that we would attach it to it. Forcefully distorting its normal functioning. There's the biological body, but then there is the second body. The body through which the unconscious speaks. And it's this second body, I believe, that Paul calls the flesh. 
I think we need to acknowledge we have the well-being, you know, we need to eat, we need to sleep, we need, you know, there's sexual drive. That's not unnatural, that's natural, the way God has created us. And so as we see further on in Ephesians, Christ is going to resolve the various divisions in the flesh, or the, with the flesh, in his flesh. This is why he became human. He describes it always in connection with the body of Christ. The body of Christ is going to resolve the human dilemma of sin. The unity of the body of Christ is achieved in the incarnation. And maybe it's because of our tendency to be disincarnate that his incarnation solves that problem. Paul describes this present tense resolution. He has been raised, he has been seated, his ascension to five to six, and our participation, we have been seated with him at the right hand of God. So death, sin, is marked by the division within the body. But Christ overcomes this division. He does not use the word flesh up in 2.9. He talks about, you're not saved through works. But I think he's clearly talking about the flesh. Because the works he has in mind, on and down the chapter, is circumcision or uncircumcision. Or keeping the works of the law. That's really what, you know, how do you keep the law? Well, you're circumcised, step one. Step two, you keep the Sabbath law. Step three, you eat according to the law. It's all marks, it's all symbols of Jewish ethnicity, the most important of which is circumcision. And so where we are caught up in the law, in the symbol system of being Jew-Gentile, or taking on the identities of the flesh that depend upon this division, the work of God is incapacitated in us. Now that sounds strong. Love is the work of God, right? The law is summed up in the love of neighbor, the love of God. And this is precisely the work that Paul says in 2.10, we're created for. We are his workmanship. So there's a kind of odd juxtaposition here. He says, you're not saved by works, but you are his workmanship, saved for good works. So this works, you know, obviously he's talking about two different things here. He says, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We're created to walk in the works that God has created us for. We are his workmanship. And if we imagine that we can carve out a piece of the flesh, you know, to put it most crudely in terms of circumcision, if we imagine we can create a meaning from the part, from Jew, Gentile, male, female, that's the letter that kills. But this section reverses this. God does the work. And we ourselves are his workmanship. We were created for good works. The good works of God. And we are that workmanship. And we would make ourselves, you know, in sin, the creator of our own works. Or our own creator. And we would take away the role of God as creator. Our work takes on apart for the whole, and this obscures love. We are incapacitated to love. Human obstruction to love, I believe, can work through the law. It can work through the law. Paul describes it in two ways. It doesn't really matter if it's transgressive or it's law-keeping. It's still law that's definitive. 
And so Paul is a Pharisee. Imagine that he could be a good Pharisee. And of course, that's deadly. That's sinful. But he also describes the other. That you can imagine yourself over and against the law. And Paul describes, this is actually in Romans 7, 1 to 3. And he says that the woman that has a husband is bound by law to the husband. And so the husband is the law here in this illustration. And the woman's relationship to her husband is kind of the prototypical social obligation. You know, marriage is the foundation of family, of society, of the love relationship usually. And the problem occurs when love is pitted against this understanding. When social life appears to me as dominated by this imposed law in which I am unable to recognize myself. I think it's, there, there's a kind of notion that deep within myself there is an experience that is imposed upon by the law. And so the woman whose husband is alive but who has fallen in love with another man experiences the law as that which opposes her love. Her notion that she is loved by her consort is to imagine that deep within her is some precious treasure that can only be loved and cannot be submitted to the rule of the law. What he's really talking about is our relationship to Christ. That it relieves this understanding of the self pitted against the law. This woman's love is a symptom. It's a sickness, actually, of the prohibition and the force of the law. And in fact, her love is here synonymous with sin. And so if the woman in Paul's illustration were to love her husband and not consort with other men, and if this were the universal case, the law would disintegrate. There is no law of love. Love outdoes the law. And I think this is what Paul means when he says, where love reigns, there is no law. And of course, the sort of love that is agape love, and that's what Paul goes on in Romans to say, that we've been united with Christ. And he actually describes it as a kind of marriage relationship. We've been united with his body. We've been married with Christ, and now we bear the fruit of that relationship. And so we've all taken the place of the woman in the illustration, and Christ then is displaced. He in some way suspends this kind of punishing relationship to the law, this kind of desire. This is the nature of sinful desire, in which the obstacle, the law, the dividing wall of hostility constitutes the identity. It constitutes the love. That's not love at all, and that's not an identity at all. Sin is the very resistant core on account of which the subject experiences its relationship to the law as one of subjection, as a kind of crushing weight. The, the deception or illusion that sin works is to construe the law as a closure of identity, which by its very nature, its absoluteness excludes love. Sin mediates the law as a power over and against love. I believe that sin disenables love. And when Paul says we are made for good works, this is the work of love that is not available in and through a misorientation to the law. 
And so Paul assures us these works are not of the ethnic kind, circumcision, uncircumcision. In 2.10, we are his workmanship. God prepared beforehand. This is the foundation. The Gentiles, the Jews, and that's everybody, right? There's only two classes of people in this understanding. We all have a flesh problem. We all have a love problem. We operate according to near and far, inside and outside, excluded and included, citizens or aliens. And Christ has undone this gauge. He suspended the ordinance of the law. Actually, the word here, suspended, katargeo. The idea is not that he's abolished the law, as we have it in some translations, but he's suspended the punishing effects of the law. You can still be a Jewish Christian. You can still be an American Christian. You can be a man, even, and be a Christian. Imagine that. You can be a woman. In other words, he's not abolished these things, but he suspended the punishing effects. He talks about the body of sin has been crucified. And he uses again the word soma, the word body. That it's suspended or it's brought to nothing. Again, the word describing this reorientation. He suspended the problem of the flesh. Verses 14 and 15. This is the key. This is the culmination. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing, suspending in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. As he says in Galatians, no longer male and female, no longer Jew and Greek, no longer slave and free, but we are all made one in Christ Jesus. So Christ does not abolish, you know, he doesn't say, okay, all you women, sorry, but you'll have to become men. Or he doesn't say to the men, sorry, but you'll have to you know, undergo a surgery and become women. We're still men and women. We're still part of national systems. But that is not definitive. He does not even abolish circumcision and uncircumcision. You know, he doesn't say, oh, all Christians have to be circumcised. He certainly doesn't say that. And in fact, he resists that. Because that's what many Jews want to do. They want to make all Christians Jewish. Paul says no. He takes these apparent opposites and by uniting them, Christ unites them. He disintegrates, he deconstructs, he undoes the semantic load that they previously bore. He doesn't abolish our biological body. I think that's what we often get wrong. Oh, we become like Jesus, that means we float free of our bodies. No, that's not who Jesus is and that's not who we are. He doesn't just give us a spiritual body either in this life or the life to come. But he takes what is natural and completes it with what is supernatural. He takes the natural and completes it through his grace. And there is no nature-grace division. There is no body-spirit division. There is no heaven and earth division. As these opposed categories you know, they were opposed and they bore their meaning in this opposition, but now they're brought together in Christ. He's broken down the wall of hostility and he brings us peace. And this is verse 17 and 18. 
And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We have life in God. So there's nothing wrong with nature. There's nothing wrong with natural desire. There's nothing wrong with biological bodies. In and of themselves, there's nothing wrong in as much as God created it. But what is natural has been made unnatural. But what is natural is made for what is supernatural. The body, and this is Paul's conclusion, is made to be the temple of God, in whom the whole building, Ephesians 2, 21 to 22, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Paul talks this way a lot. Where do we find the temple of God? Oh, it's right here. It's being constructed. We're the bricks in this temple. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Natural desire is fulfilled only in its desire and pursuit of God. We were created to be the friends of God. We were created for God. And there is a continuum between the natural and supernatural, between nature and grace. And to be dead in sin is, not to, is to not realize that. It means to be completely written over with the weight of this world, with the weight of the cosmos, with the weight of the law and the meaning of the cosmos as an end in itself. To discover the love of Christ is to recognize the eternal in the created order. The temple of God, the eternal dwelling of God in what God has created. And so there is an infinite destiny implicit in created experience. Christ is all in all. Christ is the summing up of all things. You know, this is the grand picture in Ephesians. He's the summing up of things in heaven and things on earth. It is not as if there is a natural world apart from this reality. This is the work of God, this summing up of Christ. This is the goal and end of the world. And apart from the union of the divine and human in Christ, I don't believe humanity would have existence. It would have no final cause. It would have no end. In the incarnate logos, in the reconciliation of God and creation, brought about in Christ, the God-man, the uncreated and created, the divine humanity. That is the premise of creation, perfectly realized in Christ. And in constituting the end toward which creation is oriented, and in which it is established, this premise brings humanity into being solely as a mode of participation in the divine. This is for the good work we were made for. We were made for the love of God. And when we fall short of this holistic vision, I believe we miss the purposes for which we were created. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.